Hey, 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 everybody! Welcome to another episode of... Beneath the Screen of the Ultra Critics. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Thad. (laughs) And my co-host, Kara. Greetings. I have such sights to show you. (laughs) God, I wish I could do a good Doug Bradley. Is that... I'm wondering if I'm getting his name wrong in my head now. No, yeah. Doug Bradley. Yeah, I was right. Uh, the reason why they're mentioning Doug Bradley, because one of the movies we're going to be talking about today is Hellraiser, 1987, Clive Barker. And People Under the Stairs, Wes Craven's 1991 horror comedy. Uh, question mark? <laughs> <laughs> uh, like, it's... Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, we were talking earlier about categorizing Hellraiser, but I feel like People Under the Stairs is another one that is difficult to categorize. Partly, I think, just because... Uh, kids these days, well, <laughs> uh, like, have settled too hard into genre, and it's, yeah. it's like it can just kind of be, hey, Wes Craven's latest insane thing is out. Well, Let's watch it. <laughs> well, I think that also Hellraiser is such an institution in a way that it's easier. Well, people under the stairs, I don't think it's forgotten, but it's definitely not like this massive franchise right. recognizable. Yeah, if, we're for, if we're looking for cult uh, classic, I would say People Under the Stairs is, is probably closer to that sphere, although I don't hear it talking One about of the reasons I chose People Under the Stairs because Kara talked about how she wanted to see a horror movie talking about colonialism or imperialism. It's like, well, the only thing I can think of right now is People Under the Stairs, which at the very least looks like gentrification. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it's it's a movie that from the perch of 1991 looks back at the 1980s and says, well, <laughs> uh, but let's start off with Hellraiser, the one Kara really wanted to watch. Yeah, this we is this is a Kara driven Which is episode. odd because this didn't you were worried fault. that people wanted to say it was going to be body horror. And I'm like, but you want to talk about Hellraiser? <laughs> I am terrified of body horror. Uh, it's it's really difficult for me to watch, and I am full on like nightmares, uh, nightmares for days. Except for Hellraiser, which I don't even remember how I managed to sit through it the first time <laughs> I saw it. I think it took me like literally hours to watch because I had to keep pausing and walking away. Yeah, we to can't even talk it. too much about particular Cronenberg movies <laughs> without her getting upset. Which is yeah, fine, but... you know, like you have your reasons, I'll respect that. She that... did watch the thing because she knew I loved it, and I appreciate that. And I love him, and that also took us a long time to get through. It's <laughs> like, we gotta stop watching it, because I'm gonna okay. puke. But Hellraiser's but I good. I love Hellraiser. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, Hellraiser's fine. Hellraiser's they rip fine. people apart in them. <laughs> yeah, they do. They really do. Also, incredibly horny. It is. I think part of the reason Hellraiser is so unsettling is it's lit and shot very sensually. Like, it has the vibe of an erotic thriller almost, but it's not. Yeah. Well, it's also one of those examples of, like, Clive Barker uh, did not know anything about filmmaking, but he clearly knew people who knew things about filmmaking. It's it's very much the Orson Welles of, I don't know what I'm not allowed to do, so I'm just going to do whatever the hell I want to do. I think he also, because he wrote the original story that Hellraiser is based on, I think that he had, and I don't mean like in the metaphorical sense, I mean in the very literal sense, he had a very clear vision of like, I want this to look like this, like the eye of the camera will be looking at this scene from this place, and then he's like, how do I make the thing in my mind happen? I I don't know that for sure, but like, I wouldn't be surprised if that was part of why that was as successful as it was. Yeah, because I feel like he either started out as a as a visual artist like he's a trained uh what yeah yeah i think he's a trained painter or or his parents were something like that 
Um, but like he has a he has a strong background in visual arts, which is one of those things where it's like explains a lot about uh, how visual his prose. Well, he's can a playwright and a visual artist, so yeah, yeah, yeah he has yeah. enough of a background uh, to make his stuff pop a little bit more. Which is nice. Pop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pop and booze and uh, various <laughs> other things. I just want to say one of the things that I really love about both of these movies, and every time I watch movies that I, I would say that sometime around the mid to late 90s is when I see this happening a lot. Movies that take place during the day or if they take place with night scenes, they are ostensibly at night. But really night the stuff, whole yeah. scene is lit really well and you can see everything that's happening maybe it even like very slightly goes against the suspension of disbelief but not having movies that are a dark muddy mess is just it's a great moment it's a great moment not to have a movie where i have to turn off all the lights in the house just to figure out what the white blob on the screen honestly there have been a little bit a few critics have written articles about like why are movies like in the dark so awful now and I think a lot of it has to do like with digital. You don't like maybe it looks better. On, I don't know why, but there is a there's been a downgrade in quality in terms of like how people film dark movies, and you can really and it, it's not just the complaints people make about like the Marvel movies. You're like, oh, it's muddy because that's a colorist thing. I'm talking like literally they put lights on the set and turned them right. on. Thank you for doing that. <laughs> like you can be in the dark and still see what the hell's going on. Yeah. Like sometimes movies that are filmed in the dark are darker than my house in the actual dark. I'm like, yeah, you know, things aren't just like pitch black <laughs> when you're outside. Right. Like, I mean, the windows are pretty big here, though. So. <laughs> But um, like you can still see even in the dark in like rural areas. They're called stars. Like they exist. I also love Hellraiser because Sorry. I also love the fact that there's a sick joke to oh you solved a puzzle, stupid fuck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in all fairness, though, like, like the, the oh, yeah, initial finding slash opening of the puzzle, you have to really go at it. Right. <laughs> And it's yeah, like, like it, you know, it, you played it a stupid game and you literally won the stupidest of all <laughs> You prizes. fucked around and found out, my friend. Like, yeah, the, uh, like, the... Kirsty is the only person uh, in this chain of events that doesn't know what it does when opening it or picking right. it up. Because, like, you know, the, we get this sort of bracketed thing where Frank is buying it at the beginning and then some other guy's buying it at the end. Like, most people interacting with it are actively right. seeking it. <laughs> Also, we learned that hobos are actually really just satanic angels in disguise. Well, that one is. <laughs> but, I mean, he also did just, like, like to eat bugs in a very uh, aggressive way. So, maybe. Uh, yeah, I would say that was the, the weakest part of the threading <laughs> of this movie. Honestly, the rest of it was pretty strong and pretty pretty cool. But that was, like, hmm. Also, we, uh, uh, I mean, maybe we're just taking for granted because it is something of a classic, but should, should we, uh, oh. talk about what happened? I was getting, I, I was getting there. It was just more like, <laughs> sorry. All right. So I, I'm not going to get into like a lot of the and then, and then details, but, mm, um, mm. essentially, uh, the main player where it begins is Frank and Frank is seeking extreme experiences. He buys this sort of metal puzzle box that he folds in and opens and is taken away 
in a scene where it's very clear he's having hooks put through his skin and it's being peeled off. And then we do um, a jump to oh, what's Frank and Julia. So Frank and Julia are married. They are moving into Frank. No, not Frank. Frank is the. Uh... Oh, I'm so sorry. Sorry. Larry. Larry. Played by Derek Andrew Robinson. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Julia and Larry move into a house together. Their marriage isn't going super great. And Julia has fantasies of that she actually had an affair with Frank before she or right when she and Larry got married because she does bang him on their on her wedding dress. Mm-hmm. And she's not over her obsession. And then Frank pops up as like this sort of oozing monstrosity in a really great, very thing oh. adjacent scene of him being like reanimated. One of- one of my top favorite special effects scenes maybe of all time. Like I It's impressive. It doesn't, it doesn't always stay in my head the same way that like stuff in the thing does because I've seen the thing right. too many times. But like every time I see Hellraiser, I'm just in <laughs> awe of like the Frank resurrection scene. And Frank pops up and it Frank pops up and is like, if you feed me blood, I will be able to become a human again. Like because he's just like this sort of like goo yeah. monster. Like this like it's just like the barest bit of a corpse and he's like i can reanimate and grow skin and blood and bones and all this stuff if you bring me men so julia starts bringing men home for frank where she murders them with a hammer weird choice and then frank absorbs them and julia slowly kind of begins to lose her mind she's not super stable when this begins but she clearly (laughs) like starts like disintegrate as a person as this goes on and larry's daughter kirsten is just sort of bouncing in and out of the frame and then Larry becomes worried about Julia's weird, unpredictable behavior. And Kirsten stops by to try Kirstie. and make Kirsty. Kirsten? I thought it was Kirsten. Christy. No, Kirsty. Kirsty. I'm so sorry. No. Kirsty. Kirsty tries to, you know, is going to make nice with her stepmom. She stops by the house, sees her uncle Frank eat and absorb a guy, and he's now a skinless, bloody meat person staggering around the house. She loses her mind, takes off, ends up institutionalized, accidentally opens the puzzle box to hell, whereupon uh, the Cenobites, the monsters, the S&M monsters from the box pop up and try to take her away, and she offers them Frank in exchange for herself, which they semi-reluctantly agree to depending whereon she goes back to the house finds out uh confronts julia and her father larry then realizes that that's not actually her father larry but her uncle frank is actually wearing her dad's skin the cenobites come back take frank back in a horrifying scene frank accidentally murders and then purposefully murders julia and then the house falls apart as the cenobites uh chase a screaming hysterical kirsty through the household which she fights back at multiple points ultimately escaping with her life and her boyfriend who at one point at the end when she's trying to close the puzzle box to get a mon- to get a cenobite away from her tries to take the puzzle box away from her and she slaps the snot out of him. <laughs> Not only that, but like one of the cool. Cenobites like clocks him across the jaw too. <laughs> yeah. There's a there's a great scene where um I the, the Cenobites, you have to I can't explain what they look like. You'll have to look them up, but like S and M torture sex monsters. Mm-hmm. Uh there's one that's had his jaw flayed and the skin peeled back and its eyes are sewn shut. And there's a great scene where like it pops up and Frank's trying Frank wearing Larry's skin tries to leave the room and that one just pops up and just like casually just shoves him. (laughs) 
It's like, no. <laughs> like, I will say, I love how small the great. world and hell is it is. And this is just me, like, having mm-hmm. fun. Because, like, when Frank mm-hmm. first shows up and Julia's like, who are you? It's like, Frank. And she's like, oh, the Frank that I fucked, not some other random Frank. <laughs> no, no, this has to be this other Frank that I know. I mean, to be fair, he has a very distinctive <laughs> voice. Fair. <laughs> But I, I part of me is like, uh, what if it had been just like some Vando Frank O'Neill? <laughs> There's a, a a great part where the door into the Cenobites world oh, opens, yeah. and uh, Kirsty is looking at it, and she starts to, she walks into it, and then like uh, a scary monster chases her out, and she's mm. like screaming hysterically. Uh, and I'm like, oh, this is like 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 if if Labyrinth was like, we're gonna we're gonna sex murder you. <laughs> It's, I mean, the I, sequel gets a lot more of that vibe. <laughs> I I don't know. I I truly like. I love this movie, and I love uh, Kirsty as a character because she's not exactly the main character in a way. It's actually a lot of the earlier part of the movie is more about Julia and her right. perspective. Hmm. Um, but it's just really cool. And the other movie we watched has this too of like a protagonist that like is scared and afraid and confused and makes what seemed to her to be rational decisions. She actually, like, after she sees her skinless uncle eat a guy and then, like, hit on her with, like, a monster puzzle box, she actually ends up in a fugue state and just wanders around town, like, blankly covered in blood. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, that that seems You gotta process it. It's also great because, um, there's there's a great scene where, like, uh, Kirstie has taken off and they don't know where she is and, like, Frank and Julia are talking and Julia's like, she's going to go to the police. And Frank's like, no, nah, she's going to try to come home and warn Larry And first. And that's what happens. But also, I think it's great that Kirstie does not attempt to help with the authorities. I think she's like, what are, what are they going to do? What are they going to do? Like, um, yeah, if she's, yeah, if she's able to come back, it's because she didn't tell people what she saw. I think it's interesting <laughs> uh, thinking about it now. The whole genre um whether by like unintentional design or not, seems to reiterate time and time again, the authorities will not help you. <laughs> they cannot help you. I and actually, oftentimes, many times they are powerless to help you. I actually, well, many times they're powerless. Many times they're actively yeah. hindering. I mean, I wonder if this could be literal, like missing, like missing parent syndrome. Like if the police can come in and help solve things, then there's no right. movie. But I also wonder if it's because a lot of these movies are inspired by real life murders or cases or things that happen. Like, like Psychos is the perfect example of this. Um, and like, if you look into real life murder cases or real life serial killers at all, it's the story of massive police yeah. incompetence until <laughs> the serial killer screws up or somebody else. Well, even with the, the latest Halloween kills. Like, there are many cops and firefighters and, like, firefighters and people who are just slaughtered because you can't stop them. Because Michael Myers is mm. bigger than all of that. And, in fact, like, the institutions will not save you from this thing. Mm. Uh, COVID. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very much so. Um, but also, like, it's interesting. I'm not excited to the COVID analysis metaphors that are going to A, start happening, and B, in 40 years that I'm going to have to listen to. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not. I now understand why so many people are like, I don't care if the movie's about the Vietnam War. It's a great (laughs) metaphor. Like, having lived through a couple events, now I'm like, I don't. (laughs) This movie about mermaids is about 9-11. Shut up. Yeah. Shut up. 
I mean, 9-11 metaphors got old real fast, yeah. too, but they never stopped making uh, them. Heck, Yay. I mean, superhero movies only recently stopped being about them. Yeah. Um, kind of. And some would argue... Not enough. <laughs> um, but with Hellraiser, a lot of horror movies deal with sex or deal with our, un- our sort of unease with sex. But Hellraiser, I think, hmm. more so than a lot of them almost on a Cronenberg level to some extent, of just, like, embraces the undercurrent of sex and actually makes it to where the horror and the sex are almost intertwined. They are, but there is also... um, So, like, Frank is clearly, like, a violent sexual sadist. Like, he is a bad person, and he does bad things to people sexually. And the fact that julia is intrigued by this or wants to be part of it doesn't change the fact it's manipulative and hostile but we actually see um kirsty has it uh makes out and then it's implied goes home and sleeps with her boyfriend and in the in the language of the movie this is fine right yeah it's it's just a thing that it's just a normal thing that happens it's barely yeah it's just part of life like sex and desire are fine it's and even to some extent like maybe like perversion is fine but it's not but it's violence also let me check yes clive barker is gay oh yeah oh yeah Uh, also (laughs) um the mpaa made him take out a bunch uh, not a bunch but like a lot of as much sex stuff as there there was more there the way he actually had a sex scene between frank and julia and they're like take that out because it's sodomy but go ahead and put this scene in where he stabs her with a knife yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he's like, well, like even Clyde Buck is like, I'm not this violent. <laughs> well, there was um. I don't know. Clive Barker as a creative force is someone that I, I I like whenever he just goes out and does things, even if they don't turn out like, even if they fall apart, they're usually at least fall apart in ways that are interesting. Clive Barker is just kind of like John Waters. I'm glad he's out there. <laughs> well, there's a um. Because he's he's work he's crossed paths with video games a few times, and I was I was watching a video about uh, a project he worked on that was called uh, Clive Barker's Undying, okay. and it was this sort of like rundown manor house uh, family corrupted by dark magic, whatever kind of thing. But like my favorite anecdote about its production is he wasn't there at the beginning; he sort of came in later and like wanted to and got them to redesign the main character from being some sort of like big tough like video game protagonist dude and it's like no no like make someone that i would find hot like (laughs) (laughs) i was like all right let's go i do i was i was thinking about like what the sort of so like uh one of the things I do like about Scream was that they laid out like the rules, like sex equals death, and like sex is always punished in like horror movies, slasher movies, mm. and that's not true in this one. But I think that like if you're going to take a sexual lesson from this movie, it's that lying and misleading people about the desires that you have will destroy right. you, mm. and also it's not nice. caring about how your desires harm and affect others is bad and will destroy you and the people around you because. Julia's not in love with her husband. She's in love with this, with her husband's brother-in-law, and she wants to have weird fetish kink sex. And it's like that's fine, but you, if you were honest with your husband, like I'm not into this marriage anymore, and you left, you wouldn't have had to be like violently murdered. You wouldn't have had to do any of this. You could have just gone and found the thing right. that you wanted. And again, Kirsty, who pursues what she wants pretty openly, 
is the only one who escapes alive because she doesn't yeah. lie and hide and try to be fake about it. She's like, I want to sleep with my hot boyfriend. And then she does. <laughs> and like, there's also the fact that like Frank, like the, the thing that's sort of interesting to me about Frank's trajectory in this is that Frank won't like escapes the, uh, the, the Cenobite dimension or whatever. But, but like judging by their response, that seems to not be especially common. And also like, that's not necessarily what everyone who ends up taken by them does. It's just that the like Frank ends up going too far because he's not paying attention or doesn't care or doesn't care about other people and draws other people into this. But one of the things that I'm kind of fascinated by conceptually is that like the guy at the end who is buying the box, like he might just end up being someone who wants that and like eventually becomes a new Cenobite or something like there's something kind of fascinating to me about the completely like amoral in a non sort of judgmental way, the Cenobites function. Yeah. Cause like they, they have very specific rules and they, they're not trying to hurt anyone. Right, like they're not like they're trying to just... trick you to open the box. You open the box over here. Why else? Yeah. Now, like the, now of course the, the problem with that is that like, if you don't right. know what the box is, then like you have accidentally, my favorite metaphor for it is that it's like an end user license <laughs> agreement that you don't read. <laughs> And so, <laughs> I mean, they're the most truest form of demons because they're like, yeah, we great. enforce the bargain. Right. We don't care how you came to agree to it. Hmm. But um, also, so like Frank is like clearly afraid of them and doesn't want to go back and, and be captured by them. He wants to hide from them. But when they do capture him and like once again, fill him with like meat hooks. He seems to kind of enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, he says, you know, Jesus wept. And then he has this, like, weird, gross, tongue-licking moment where it's like, okay, oh, so why did you so leave, good. man? You seem in, you seem to be having a good time. Um, <laughs> I will say what's interesting about Hellraiser, it's the only thing in this movie that bothered me. And by say bothered mm. me means, like, I can't watch without squirming, is when Larry cuts mm. his hand on that nail. Oh, uh, right? It's so, like that gets me oh <laughs> and oh. she's like no the guy when he gets the hammer to the face and you can see that his teeth have been no, yeah fine. i'm okay with that it's the, it's the nail thing <laughs> and i think it's because i've a no, moved okay. a couch and b i have my like like cut my hand on a nail before so i'm just like ah! <laughs> two oh. things that are the no, worst I, like I was afraid of that before I ever saw this movie. And like this movie, I always am like, oh, fuck, the nail's coming. Honestly, as far so, as couch movie and adventures go, that's probably the, the easiest one I've ever seen on film. So I was, so when I was at work one day, we were having like a, a horror movie trivia oh God, thing. Okay. And the person who, the, it turns out that the, it was with my trainers and my, who are training me for my job. It was just gonna be a short like little fun group activity and they just grabbed one of them from the internet like they hadn't seen a lot of these movies and i'm like oh i don't really like horror well it turns out i've seen a lot of horror movies because i will force myself to see most movies that are cultural touchstones <laughs> even if they mess me up a little bit <laughs> so they're like oh kara you've seen a lot of horror i'm like no i only watch them for scientific reasons <laughs> which people thought was weird <laughs> and they're like oh like if you don't really like horror i'm like well my favorite movie is however is like it's really intense it's like really metaphorical it has a lot of things in it like it's just really cool and like somebody's like the way you talk about that movie is a little bit weird and i'm like 
I cannot express to you at work why this movie is the way that it is, and I'm trying to cultivate an expectation that you should not watch this movie with right. children, but I do not know how to express this in a work-appropriate way. Uh, so I'm just going to be like, I, I think it's... Well, one of the other... like. Uh, I'm sorry, a bit of a tangent, but like one of the other things that kind of makes Hellraiser really compelling to me is that it 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 takes place in this weird no place because they have like British and like American people, and there's a bunch of overdubbing yeah. because of like because weird of producer, yeah. producer reasons. <laughs> and it like it gives it a, a like a it's not exactly like a dreamlike quality, but it is confusing well, yeah. in kind of a compelling because the way, way. it's lit. Like I said, it was central, but it also has this sort of like soft lighting, almost dreamlike quality to it. So it never feels yeah. Yeah. like you're in a reality so much. Like it feels like a story, and in a way, make like ele- I don't want to say elevates, but like makes it more potent and visceral because it's not real. Hmm. Yeah. Because when you're dealing with the Cenobites, if you try to ground it in reality, it's gonna be like what? No. <laughs> I like. S- sorry, just. Hmm. Just think of, like, one of the things about the Cenobites that I like conceptually, or, like, one of the things about this movie that's such a sexual movie, it's so much about sex and violence, and, like, the Cenobites are clearly wearing, like, BDSM clothes, and it's, like, extreme, like, way beyond the norms of any kind of, like, actual BDSM that a human being could practice, because you would literally die. But also, the Cenobites themselves are fairly genderless. Like, the only reason one could assume they have a gender at all is because they clearly, like, one of them has a feminine-sounding voice, and another one has a slightly more masculine-sounding voice. And the others are, like, sexless, almost inhuman-looking things that you would have no idea, like, what even the actor under the costume was. And so they're like, yeah, we search for experience. Yeah, like I have no idea what like gender the the Cenobite with the chattering teeth like. <laughs> I don't have. think it matters. No idea. <laughs> don't chattering teeth. And, and like, I think it. <laughs> yeah. No, I want to high five that chattering teeth. <laughs> like they're cool. There's just something about like, oh, we seek out the most intense of all experiences. That's hmm. what we look for. It's not about the, the fact that they are incredibly about sex and sexuality but nothing about attraction Mm. that i don't know i I like that in the cenobites i'm like the cenobites are like the ultimate they they don't care they don't care what gender you are they don't care what your body looks like they don't care about any of that what they want to care is look do you want this meat hook in your ass or not i don't (laughs) really care what your answer is what are we doing here do you have nerve endings we're gonna work them out (laughs) (laughs) i don't know i just really feel that there should be more sexy movies there should be more sexy murder movies that are not about uh victimizing women sexually. Uh, i agree yeah, but I'm again that's vmpaa <laughs> because as we look because there was even like a, a spanking scene that was cut out Oh yeah, yeah. So like you know, the, uh, it's, one, it's one of the things that the mpaa hates sex but loves violence god they hate it it's so very much. weird how much they it's... hate it well, it's also I one of those things like we hope we're... that he has some of these like cut or deleted scenes somewhere <laughs> filed away and could like do like an he doesn't he was a first timer and, and so he's like someone has to have him yeah oh, it um so this i know in a weird way the snm thing carries over to people under the stairs um <laughs> but like in a very, in a very negative way, way like, like people under the stairs isn't really like a commentary on snm so much as it is just like 
no it, it's it's it kind of uses it to code its antagonists as being yeah. insane which is uh, it's part of which, a long history yeah. of movies just uh stigmatizing snm yeah yeah, I mean, it, it's essentially like the the villains in People Under the Stairs are kind of the epitome of the ups, the stuck-up conservatives are secretly, like, doing shameful, kinky stuff behind the closed doors of their giant house. Right. Uh, yeah. Which, I mean, not to... And I, I mean, it's worth criticizing that as a trope that people lean on and then, like, believe is true in real life in kind of unproductive ways. But uh, People Under the Stairs is, is extreme. Well, I, because it's one... Sorry, it, I can't. No, I just... I, I have described this to several ways and several different people now, and I stand by it. People Under the Stairs, if someone's like, what if Home Alone was yeah. a horror movie? <laughs> and it is great. I love it. I love because it's like... What people knew to say is, is like, okay, I'm an adult, and if I was a child in a horror movie, here's the stuff that I would do. And then that's what the main character does. Again, another protagonist that's like, I like they're scared, they're frightened. Sometimes decisions they make are bad because they don't understand what's going on or because they are scared. Um, but we as the audience don't know a lot more than they do, which I think is cool. Mm. And the other thing is that um, they fight back like violently aggressively like kirsten fights back like there's this like monster bug thing coming out of the closet screaming and trying to grab her and she just like <laughs> like goes for it and uh fool the the protagonist uh, uh fool in this movie like he fights back like he fights back viciously and i'm like i just love watching people fight well, back in horror movies like the, 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 it's so cathartic. the thing that people forget when they talk about Wes Craven movies and this is a guy who studied psychology and philosophy and taught English in Westminster and so like for him like stories come from communities which are a breeding ground of a lot of different issues and in a weird way people want to understand it almost feels like a fairy tale or a folk tale to some degree Yes. And also at the same time, like he is dealing with sort of like the philosophy of a late stage capitalism. <laughs> like, <laughs> if not, the, these people are literally hoarding the wealth. Yeah. For no productive purpose. <laughs> they're just, they're just people who take other people's money and sit on it yeah. and hate. Like, it's, and it's then so are on the nose. <laughs> rewarded for yeah. this behavior. Yeah. And uh, lauded by the police. Again, this is another <laughs> movie in uh, Hellraiser. No one attempts to go to the police because they're useless. And this one, Fool does attempt to go to the police. And I'm like, oh, that's disappointing. And it turns out he doesn't actually think the police are going to help him. They're just a way for him to get out. Yeah, get, get back, back in. in. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, we um, should probably talk briefly about what uh, happens in this movie. So the people under the stairs, um, the main, it begins with a tarot card reading of the journey of the main character, Poindexter, who goes by the nickname Fool. He is a young black man, uh, probably around maybe 12? No, 13. He turns 13. It's his 13th morning. birthday. Yeah, there's a, his there's 13th a birthday. And he finds out that his mom is sick and dying of cancer and that they have are about to be evicted in two days because they are a few days late on their rent. And if you're three days late on your rent, your rent triples. And so they're going to be homeless. Uh, his sister's friend slash boyfriend convinces him that they should rob their landlord. And so um, and he wants Fool to help. So they go to rob the landlords 
And there is a scene in which we find out the landlords, whose only name we know are Mommy and Daddy, <laughs> live in a giant creepy house with a little girl, their daughter named Alice, who they violently beat and abuse, and some sort of thing that lives in the walls, like some sort of like feral human thing in the walls. So, uh, uh, Fool, and who's he with? Is it Stanley? He's with Leroy, and Leroy. I forget the white guy's <laughs> name. Leroy and Spencer. So, um, he, Fool goes with Leroy, these, these fool, uh, fool goes with these two adults. Uh, the first one gets in the house and doesn't come back out, um, and they think that he has found the, they, fi they find out that the landlords have gold coins that, that they think that Spencer's gonna screw them. So they go in the house, and Fool, and, uh, Oh my god, I forgot his name again. Leroy? What's wrong with me today? Leroy? Thank you. Good god, okay. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> Fool and Leroy go into the house, and Fool finds Spencer dead. The, the house is full of traps. It's full of a violent dog named Prince that tries to attack them multiple times. And Leroy and Spencer realize these people are insane, and they have to get out of the house. That doesn't work out so well, so they end up trapped in the house. Leroy is shot. He tells Fool to run before he is shot to death, and Fool disappear, uh, runs through the house, ends up meeting the little girl Alice, who shows him a vent in the wall and has him go in it with the boy he meets, who is Roach, who helps him escape from Daddy, who is running around shooting shotguns into the walls with his giant dog, and is also intermittently dressed in a gimp suit, a suspension <laughs> gimp suit, which he gets in and out of. Very quick. Well, yeah, it's kind of impressive. <laughs> which I think is impressive. Uh, both Daddy and Mommy are absolutely insane, abusive, screaming freaks. And one thing that they often is, uh, they often scream the phrase "burn in hell" mm. uh, when they have are displeased with someone. Mm. Uh, eventually, um, Fool finds out that there are the people under the stairs are children that. Uh, disobey the commandment of see no evil, speak no e evil, hear no evil, which Alice explains that she is the only child that has not heard, seen, or spoken evil, but the rest of them have had their tongues, ears, or eyes cut out and are forced to live in the basement where the people that mommy and daddy murder are butchered and fed to them as they are now feral basement cannibals. Mm hmm. Through a complex series of events, Roach ends up dying, and before he dies, even though he's had his tongue cut out, he does write he does write a note asking Fool to help Alice. Fool tries to get Alice out of the house, but fails, escapes himself, and runs home. When he gets home, he finds out that Mommy and Daddy are not a married couple, but are in fact siblings, even though they are clearly having sex with each other. And Fool anonymously calls the police. Um, to report a case of child abuse. Mommy and Daddy deny that they have a child and they have hidden Alice away and the police leave. Much to the viewer's disappointment until you find out that Fool used this as an excuse to get back into the house whereupon he rescues Alice and through a series of hijinks and almost dying several times he manages to get Alice out. He gets into the basement uh, with the feral people the people under the stairs where he convinces them to let him help and they show him that there is a room filled with money and dynamite. As you do. <laughs> yeah. As you do. Gotta keep uh, that safe. Fool at one point is saved because all of the neighbors show up. And it turns out that what these people have done is they've used their money to buy up huge chunks of the area that Fool is from. The ghetto, as he calls it. And they are selling off parts of it to build condos. And they've evicted hundreds of people from their homes who are now outside having an angry protest. Where the door repeatedly... There's a lot of like almost 
French birdcage hijinks. Yeah, it becomes very farcical at certain points. It's it's not unpleasant to watch. It's very tension-inducing, but it's uh, not exact. It's tension-inducing, but not fear-inducing. Ultimately, uh, Alice takes her, uh, ultimately, uh, fool ends up killing Daddy. Alice and the feral people, uh, Alice knocks Mommy down, and the feral people come out of the basement, eat her, and throw her down there. And then Fool triggers the dynamite to go off, which explodes the house. Mommy and Daddy are both dead. Alice is safe with Fool. The house blows up into all of the money that's been hoarded away, which the people cheerfully grab. And the mutilated children under the stairs slip away into the night to live in freedom. There's also a great line where when he sees all of this money, like this enormous piles and piles of money just hoarded under this filthy, unkempt house, the Fool's like, no wonder there's no money in the ghetto. It's all here. Well, uh, which they don't use because uh, at one point, Daddy confronts fools like, "Yeah, I just like to come down here and count all this money." <laughs> they, they don't use it for anything; it's just money they keep to look at. And one of the things I will say, what I love about Wes Craven movies, especially this one, uh, is the dialogue is this weird sort of like Good. it's kind of cheesy, but at the same time, I love it. Well, because also like, look, everyone at movie... sells it. Everyone is in it to win it. <laughs> Well, he casts Mo- mommy and uh, daddy. Absolutely, ten out of ten. Yeah, well, the right. the people that he cast as those characters, uh, Everett McGill and Wendy Robbie, were also played a married couple in yeah. Twin Peaks. So I feel like they they definitely know how to sell things that are strange. Thirteenth <laughs> birthday is unlucky anyway. Yeah. Too old to get it. Too young to get ass fucked out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Ving Rhames is always fun to see. Just because you see a body laying doesn't mean he's dead. There are great scenes where, like, Daddy is chasing Fool with a shotgun. And at one point, uh, Fool, like, hits him with stuff. He fights back. He actually uh, punches him in the dick at one point. (laughs) And then hits him with a lamp. Uh, Another time, like... uh, when Daddy's wearing the gimp suit, he picks Fool up and slams him against the wall, clearly stri- intending to strangle him to death. And Fool just takes his thumb and gout starts to gouge Daddy's eyes out. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> yeah, not being helpless. Uh, it's, we it should rules. note that Fool is played by Brandon Adams, who was actually a mm-hmm. really good child actor. Yeah, he, he was. was. Uh, he was, he was also in the same lot. Yeah. And I think also, uh, I didn't remember this until I looked it up, but the the Mighty Ducks. Oh, yeah. Oh, he's he's he sells this movie like like it is a risk to have a pseudo horror movie rest on the chops of a child actor and uh, absolutely makes it work. Yeah. Yeah. He he sells it like it was a bold. Well, not only that, because this is also a horror movie that's like sort of juggling a few genres, because it's part satire, part farce. It is a horror movie, because mm-hmm. there's a lot of gore, and all, it's just a couple of jump scares, but it's also, like, dealing with classism, gentrification, and... Oh, yeah, it's it's worth mentioning that the uh, the mommy and daddy characters are definitely attempting to evoke uh, Ronald and Nancy <laughs> Reagan. <laughs> well, also, um, besides that, uh, Craven actually uh, based this on a real-life incident of Two, yeah, uh, yeah. apparently two uh, guys broke into a house in Los Angeles and found out that the people living there were keeping kids as prisoners. Yeah, it's... I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, it's also, like, really interesting, like, 
race plays an issue, but not like the inner city and race. They never West Craven being white doesn't really explore the race card that much. I shouldn't say the race card, the race mm. issue that much, but he is yeah. attempting to try to do something. He yeah. does. I would. He does allude, like it's very directly to like these people are poor and exploited, right. and the angry crowd outside of mommy and daddy's house is largely black, but it's also yeah. mixed. There are white people and Hispanic people in that crowd, and the two biggest times it's brought up is when Alice first meets yeah. Fool, and he asks her, "You ever seen a brother before?" And she's like, "I don't have any brothers." And he's like, "No, a black man." And she's like, "What is a black man?" <laughs> She has no idea because she's never been able to leave the house or see anyone but, like, her parents, quote-unquote. They're not her parents. They kidnapped her. Or, like, the children they mutilate. She's only ever seen white people. She doesn't know what blackness is. And then later on, Daddy becomes and says it very – I think he says the N-word and is cut off from yeah. saying it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Um, he believes that like Alice and fool had sex, which doesn't make any sense because they are <laughs> respectively like 12 and 13. And also he clearly has a weird pseudo sexual interest in Alice and like his disgust and fear at being emasculated by black people. He mm. says some pretty gross stuff after they shoot Lee. He and mommy both say some like pretty gross explicitly and racistly coded things when they um, murder Leroy. Like they're very clearly violent big right. racists on top yeah. of everything. Not only else. that, but like they're very much the type of people who would know the age of statutory rape laws. Yeah. <laughs> Might even carry it around in a little right. card in their wallet. It's like what oh. Yeah. Like and like these are like legit like it's also like they're not supernatural. They are just irredeemably no. awful. Yeah. And it's it's also familial. Yeah. So there's uh, when Fool manages to escape from like their house of horrors and gets home and he knows he needs to go back for Alice. He talks to his grandfather and his grandfather tells him like, yeah, that family's always been really yeah. gross and messed up. Like we wouldn't go past their house back in the day when we were kids. And so there's like this intergenerational like the horrors in that ancient like in this crumbling house couldn't have been built. And so, again, if you're going to talk about yeah, like, like exploitation. Some that being the child of like violent capitalists does something to you that can't be undone unless you. Well, not all that. Well, it's, it's, it's that Edgar Allan Poe kind of thing, right? It's like fall of the house of Usher, but like, yeah, through the lens of uh, the 1980s. Well, not only that, but the house itself is squalid, but they have all this money. They yeah. just don't care because they have all the money. <laughs> yeah. Like that's it's that's what's so great about all the money being in the basement, like, and they're they're doing all this damage to the community and to people for for no benefit, <laughs> like, like, like not mean, even to benefit themselves, because like Daddy at various points shoots and stabs the walls in the house, hmm. and Mommy doesn't really care <laughs> at all. Like their house is disgusting, filthy, run down, falling down, and they're actively making it worse. And uh, there's one part where she where like when the one time where they talked to the police, they're like, oh yeah, like they're just bringing down the quality of the neighborhood. And it's like, bitch, you have a house full of brooches. <laughs> like who is. Well, it's also great because she's clearly like when, when the police come in, she's clearly disgusted by them and their presence, but knows how to make like right. use of them. 
make nice. It's, yeah. it's a great like that that the interactions with them and the police are, are some great moments in terms of just like what's being communicated. Well, and also much like Hellraiser, the goy like didn't affect me, but throwing Alice into the tub of boiling hot water. Oh, oh. yeah. That little girl screamed like she was being yeah. really hurt. Yeah. Just great child actors in this movie. But like it's his whip because oh god, is people on our stairs rated R? It would have Yeah, you be, but it's the eighties. He tears so a living man apart and throws well, it's, it's early nineties, so it might but, uh... just be Of course now they make it impossible to find that out. Yeah, it's hard to find out. Uh, but have you got you guys seen other Wes Craven movies, right? I, yeah, I feel yeah, like this uh, is one of I've his seen... tamer ones, and yet still at the same time yeah. one of the more like genre bending ones. Oh, definitely. Yeah, like this is it's a hard movie to like place. I hate to be this guy, but I'm going to say the thing that I think like the masters of horror era of like Craven, Cronenberg, um, Barker, that era where there were like five or six directors that made a lot of, they made other movies too, but they made a lot of horror movies between like the eighties into the nineties. And a lot of those horror movies went on. Carpenter became like seminal horror movies. People forget what made that era and those movies so good good and only repeated the parts that kind of people walked out of the movie theater immediately talking about what? like horror has gotten so disappointing y'all very shallow in terms I would, of uh... mainstream big screen horror i don't want to poop on the indie horror market which is always right. you know being boss but i mean all of these guys started as indie horror yeah generally. well like I don't know, I just, although, I, although i mean i, I would like say the people, great moments in horror are kind of behind us and that makes me sad i mean i think also folks like uh, i think one of the things with wes craven and and john carpenter i think especially is they're not afraid to just do something other than what they had right. been doing well it's kind of like what and, sets james Wan hmm. apart from everything everyone else it's very much the hmm. just like wes craven and them there's something beneath the horror but there's mm-hmm. also, like, the joy of the horror itself. Like, Wes Craven isn't trying to make elevated horror movies. Yeah, But no. they're just yeah. also <laughs> well-made horror movies. And also, but I think mm. it's easy to forget, the first Nightmare on Elm Street is almost surreal by modern-day comparison. Yeah. I actually think that for vibes... Nightmare on Elm Street and Hellraiser have that similar vibe... Oh, yeah. Of like you almost feel like there's a film on yeah. the camera, hmm. like there's a there's a, because it yeah, never yeah. feels like especially with Nightmare, it's hard to tell when the reality kicks in. You always kept yeah. on this sort of like unbalanced what's going to happen with Hellraiser it's because the sheer audacity of the of what's happening. Hmm. By audacity, I mean a literal doorway to hell and demons come in. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't, James Wan is an interesting comparison because I've actually seen very few of his uh, horror movies because I'm not that interested in like The Conjuring. Uh, or I understand you, why but, you're not into The Conjuring. Insidious is really good. I've been, I have been meaning to to go back around to that one because you're not the first. You're you are not the first person to tell me that. That might be um, too scary for me. Hmm? <laughs> but but also, Kara, he directed yes. Aquaman. 
Oh. And I adore Aquaman. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. I, I, it's one of the the sequel to Aquaman is one of the few these days upcoming superhero movies that I'm truly curious yeah. about. I mean, um, that and Eternals are like the only two I'm really. Uh, I, I am like not to be like a basic uh, bastard or whatever you would say it uh, on on Twitter, but I am kind of disappointed with the the look of the Eternals movie because I wish it was as colorful as like the Guardian yeah, stuff. But, but like at least in terms of the the people running the movie, I'll, I'm I'm not going to flush yeah. it down the toilet yet just because the visuals are like Marvel. At the same time, still by Marvel standards, the visuals look pretty good, better than what I'm used yeah, to. That's that's fair. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's just, it's it's one of those things where it's like I I I like the designs, but it's also one of those where like uh, Guardians so spoiled me for like doing visually what I want this kind right. of stuff to look like that I I'm now too much of a snob, which is what makes Aquaman great because it looks <laughs> like a fun movie as opposed to most of the DC um, stuff. Getting back to the horror, <laughs> sorry. I do anyway. like the vibe in Aquaman of like somebody smoking a cigarette and flicking off and be like, okay, they know what they know. Yes. Let's move on. Like there's no. <laughs> I hate 30-minute intros of, like, I don't believe you have powers. Oh, my God. You, and it takes, like, 20 minutes of the movie. I don't care. Well, you don't need to convince me. I've seen enough of these movies. And they're like, yep, she has powers. Keep going. Like, I'm like, yes, just keep well, going. Well, that's kind of like what Hellraiser and people understand. Too. They don't waste time trying to convince you. They just yeah, go no. with it. We are here. I mean, hell, it opens up with the yeah, guy I, playing I, with the puzzle box getting ripped to shreds. Yeah. Like that kind of confidence of um, uh, letting the letting the story yeah. happen, you know. Yeah. Uh, like we were talking about this because we we've been re- rewatching uh, Legion with a, a friend, which is a uh, a show that Kara and I both like a lot. And one of my favorite episodes, like almost does that, but it still does the the much more sort of contemporary thing where there's a character who sort of explains what's going on in the middle of the episode, despite. It's sort of dream logic working perfectly fine, right. in my opinion. But whatever. Well, so like cowards. <laughs> I just love movies. I'm sorry. I just love movies where like someone's like, "What if they don't get it?" And like the director's like, "Then they'll be lost." I guess. Like I don't know what you like, want from me. Keep insert going. Tommy Lee Jones. I don't <laughs> yeah, care. It's like, yeah. What if they don't get it? Well, I guess they shouldn't have walked into my movie then, shouldn't they? <laughs> <laughs> what if they don't get it i don't know i feel like the guy that has the peeled nipples <laughs> and the nails in his head is pretty well expressing the thought of oh shit. if they like, don't get it they should go outside and touch grass i don't know what you want from me yeah yeah because i mean it's it's a good way through the movie before uh grandpa booker comes in and is like oh yeah here's what those people right. is because it kind of the explanation doesn't matter because we're with fool and we're following him through the insane right. stuff that's happening. Well, not, not only that, but just like the sheer notion of like the idea of the landlord never going away <laughs> and like only growing more powerful as time goes on. What a ridiculous, uh, fantastic! What a horrifying notion. notion. <laughs> yeah, yeah that would never happen in yeah yeah that sucked to live in that time uh yep. so you guys have never seen people under the stairs have yeah. you guys seen other west craven movies uh craven? didn't we just do this wait craven? i think we did didn't we? my bad wait no it's all right. i thought we didn't go okay. into specifics sorry go ahead Kara. okay so west craven Sorry, Clive uh, Clive Barker. I've only seen the first two Hellraiser movies. 
Uh, me too. And as far as I know, they're the only ones that are required, like that are good enough to sort of call them required. Hellraiser is the one franchise that um, when it went into space, I wasn't like, oh, they ran out of ideas. I was like, no, that's inevitable. Of course it'd go to space. <laughs> Why wouldn't it go to space? Uh, I think the first Wes Craven movie I saw was predictably Swamp Oh, um, <laughs> I, I forget sometimes that's a Wes Craven movie, not a John Carpenter movie. Right? <laughs> It it does feel like it could go either way. <laughs> I've actually seen a lot more Clive Barker movies. I always forget who makes what movies. I'm terrible with directors. Yeah. But uh, my my very favorite sort of scariest movie of all time. Mm. I love Hellraiser as a horror movie, but my very favorite, I guess, scary movie is Nightbreed. <laughs> and yeah. Nightbreed is also a Barker movie. I love Nightbreed so you know, much. I don't think I've seen Nightbreed. Hold on. I love it. Although there's a part where a guy peels the skin off his head, and um, I do have to close my eyes in that in case I throw up. But uh, I, I think in terms of the the sort of Wes Craven canon, the ones that I've not seen, I haven't seen either of The Hills Have Eyes, the original ones. Um, I've definitely seen The Serpent and the Rainbow at some point, but I don't remember that much about it other than uh, one of the Bills having a bad time. <laughs> I actually uh, saw A Nightmare on Elm Street as a double feature with when they re-released The Exorcist with new footage in Ooh, theaters. Ooh, how was that? We saw it in theaters and went home and watched A Nightmare on Elm Street uh, with my dad because I told him I'm not going to sleep anyway. I might as well have a reason not to. <laughs> so my dad's like, that sounds reasonable. And then I didn't sleep for like a week. <laughs> and my mom was like, "Why'd you listen to the child? She's stupid." <laughs> <laughs> to be clear, I wasn't a child. I was like fourteen, fifteen. Like I was Can old I... enough to uh, know better. Nope. Uh, is Scream? Yeah, all the Scream movies are less Scream. Scream's less Scream. except for the last one. I believe my mom actually had. My mm. mom actually had the screenplay for Scream. Uh, for one of her classes, she had to study it, and so I've actually read the screenplay for Scream multiple. Yeah, that's multiple Kevin Williams. It's quite good. Uh. now and then uh, i i remember i had actually forgotten that cursed was a west craven movie which is a very odd that one there was a lot uh, of innocence werewolf movie yeah it's a very strange movie i i every now and then try to find a good werewolf movie and i'm frequently right. well no there's a there's a podcast <laughs> i listen to a uh, franchiseography and they mm. basically do deep dives on franchises and they looked at scream mm. And then they did an episode based on Chris and just talked about like all the behind the scenes shenanigans. Uh, uh, oh, the wine stand is <laughs> interfering. What a, what a giant surprise. <laughs> the moment you see him, Max, we like, a little bit. Uh, yeah. We were talking a little bit ago uh, here about Princess Mononoke and uh, the Ghibli people sending the wine scenes a sword with a note that said <laughs> no cuts. <laughs> Uh, all right, so that's really all the time we have for right now. Oh, yeah, I guess it is. Anyway, watch Hellraiser and, and people under the stairs. Any final thoughts? <laughs> I really wish there were more movies like whatever it is, the people under the stairs. Honestly, I, like, I think Attack I, the Block is the closest thing to come up. Oh, that would be a yeah, that's a that's yeah, a good comparison. That's a really good movie. Candyman, the first one. Of- I mean, it's Candyman. Candyman doesn't have the comedy yeah. part, but it has. No, Candyman is very. Candyman like looks into the camera and tells. If... I'm so excited for the remake. Uh, of that Candyman one. is a good pan yeah. with Hellraiser, probably. 
Well, I think it actually pairs thematically bo- like well with both. Like you watch people under the stairs first to be like, oh, okay, we're talking a little bit about gentrification, and then you watch Candyman and I'm like. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, because because as you point out, like it doesn't get a lot into like the incredible racialized elements explicitly of gentrification in hmm. uh, the people under the stairs, and then Candyman is like grabs the camera's like what if we talked about racism like, <laughs> well also um it has tony todd which if you connected with hellbase uh, it's a deep space nine connection yeah, yeah. where you got star trek all over <laughs> <laughs> um why do i hmm? i'm just like why have i seen so many horror movies <laughs> i think you might like horror movies i don't know like, i don't know what, how, how to tell you this but if you've watched a lot of horror movies even if it is just for the science of the thing you might be a horror fan because otherwise who cares about the science of the thing <laughs> i'm just like oh like i should see candy minks it's, it's a cultural touchstone and you know just deal with the inevitable horrible nightmares like yeah. i don't yeah I don't know why I've seen like that's the reason why I've seen so many of these movies. I'm like, oh, like everyone talks about Hellraiser, I should see it, and then you just watch it behind a pillow, screaming the whole time. Yeah, yeah except uh, there have been a lot of cultural t- touchstone movies that came out in the last decade. And I'm like, I have no desire to see that. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I think what well, we well, learned I'm, is I'm, Kara I'm likes old, horror movies, okay. whether she likes it or not. Yeah. <laughs> Carol likes horror movies or else that's what she learned from Hellraiser yeah well we do have such sights <laughs> that's all the time we have say goodbye everybody no bye everybody <laughs> okay fine bye <laughs>